Welcome back to part two of the podcast this morning. And the music that brought us back in is the Gregorian chant in Paradisium, which, of course, would be familiar to many people as the prayers said of the final commendation of the closing liturgy rites for a funeral. Into your hands, O Lord, we commend his spirit. And it is a fitting and appropriate piece of music to open this podcast, this part of the podcast this week, where we are going to reflect on... Uh, a humble worker in the vineyard of the Lord. Uh, the words that he used to describe himself when he was presented on the balcony of the Logia of St. Peter's Basilica in 2005 when Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI was elected as the Supreme Pontiff and the 265th successor to St. Peter. But going back before that, of course, John, he was, of course, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, sometimes called the Panzer Cardinal, very unfairly in, in, in my view, but a man of much simplicity and devotion to the church and of faith and of, of, of very much involved in exploring the faith. I think the, you know, there's been many descriptions of him, uh, many things said about the man over the years. A lot of them, I think it would be fair to say, not exactly fair or nice. Um, and you'd have to kind of ask the question sometimes, did the fact that the man was doing his job very much colour people's interpretation and understanding mm. of the individual mm. behind? You know, very much uh, God's Rottweiler, the grim kind of cartoon character that was presented, but didn't really stack up, you know, for a man that was also being described as a gentle soul, a shy man who nonetheless had a robust sense of humour and, of course, very much a Mozart Mozart lover, Um, you know. But looking at the story and reflecting this morning on the life of Joseph Ratzinger, he, of course, was born in Germany in 1927, and he was actually born on uh, Holy Saturday, which was something that he often reflected on in many respects. Um, he was one of three. Uh, he had one brother, George, and one sister, Maria. Uh, his parents, actually, uh, I didn't realize this myself until I was reading the obituaries during the week, were Joseph and Maria. That's right. Yes, yeah, yeah, Joseph yeah. and Mary. Picked up there. Yeah, it was an interesting one. But he was born on April the 16th, 1927, in Upper Bavaria, and he was born on a holy Saturday. And he said, you know, he found it, um, he, he always said, I was pleased to have been born on the vigil of Easter, already on the way to Easter, but not there yet, for it is still veiled. I find that a very good day, which in some sense hints at my conception of history and my own situation on the threshold of Easter, but not yet through the door. Um, He was baptised too at that point in time, which of course is when the church baptised. 
And uh, it was an interesting one. Um, you know, at the time when he was born, the Easter liturgies weren't celebrated at night. They were celebrated during the day. So the vigil was out of whack with the with the time of the day. Okay. Um, so that, that, the, 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 the morning that he was born on Holy Saturday, the, the water had been blessed as part of the Easter vigil. And he says, I was the first person baptized with the new water. And it does mean something to me because it situates me particularly in the context of Easter and also binds birth and baptism in a very suggestive way. And I just thought it was interesting. One thing that struck me, John, just kind of reflecting on it was the fact he was born at Easter and he died at Christmas. Yeah. You know, mm, and mm. I just thought, I just I thought there's something in that. I'm not sure what, but I'm sure there's something in that. There's something to reflect on. Indeed, mm. indeed. His father was a police commissioner and belonged to an old family of farmers from Lower Bavaria. And his mother was the daughter of artisans from Ringstig on the late shores of Lake Chiem. And where they lived in Lower Bavaria actually was very close to uh, Austria and to the city of Salzburg. So Joseph Ratzinger had a profound love of Mozart. Mm. Uh, throughout his life and actually at the end of the piece we're doing now at the end of this part of the podcast we are going to close out with a piece from Mozart's Requiem Um, (coughs) as I said one brother one sister Maria um, when I'm skipping ahead slightly when Joseph was called to Joseph Ratzinger was called to Rome Maria came with him to be his housekeeper his brother George uh, served as a priest in in their home diocese as well Um, their father wasn't exactly a fan shall we say of Mr. Hitler and so suffer, and but he was a policeman, so he was moved around. He was a police commissioner, and they were moved around a lot until eventually, um, you know, they they settled down in one particular um, one particular parish, a Trau, Traustein, I think is how it's called, uh, about thirty kilometers from Salzburg. Um, he obviously grew up during the Nazi regime, and even it's an interesting one. One of the interesting things that's been thrown around is the fact that some people would accuse uh, Joseph Ratzinger of being a Nazi, which is very unfair to the man, considering uh, one piece of uh, family history, if you like, is that a cousin of his died in 1941 who had Down syndrome. And he's, he was taken away for treatment, in inverted commas, by the authorities. And they received notification a number of months later that he had died. So this, the, this, the general assumption is that his cousin was one of those that were euthanized under the Nazi regime. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. You know, uh, the young Joseph also saw some Nazis beat up the parish priest before the celebration of mass. You know, so it was in this kind of situation, I suppose, that he's, he was very, they, were, they seemed to be a very strong, close family. Um, you know, even even throughout his life, you know, I, I heard a story on, on the radio during the week um, that as the announcement was being made from the balcony, Habemus Papam, um, he was ringing his brother in Germany to tell him before the worst of the world knew that he had been elected Pope. Mm, yeah. You know, so it's an interesting one. Uh, he was conscripted into, well, he, himself and his brother were required to join the Hitler Youth. Um, that was a requirement at the time, even though uh, we understand they didn't exactly participate in those kind of events. And he was uh, he was conscripted into the army, into an anti-aircraft corps in September 1944. And he eventually deserted and managed to get himself arrested as a POW under the Americans before being released. And at that stage, then, he was able to return to his studies to be a priest. So from 1946 to 51, he studied philosophy and theology uh, at Friesburg. Freezing, rather, and at the University of Munich. 
And he was ordained on the 29th of June, 1951. That's an interesting one. He was ordained actually on the same day as his brother. And there's a lovely photograph that's going around. People may have seen it of the two brothers giving their blessing after being ordained. And George, his older brother, there's a grin that's nearly splitting his face. You know, the man is yeah, delighted yeah, with himself. Yeah, yeah. And Joseph is there quite serious, quite profound. You know, it's, it's an interesting one, kind of an interesting description of the two brothers. Uh, he obtained his doctorate in 1953 on Augustine's Doctrine of the Church. And in four years later, he qualified uh, to teach as a university professor. So this is the process they follow in Germany, where you have to do a, almost like a second thesis so that you then become okay. a professor. Yes. So that was in 1957. Uh, then he, he went on to teach at Bonn from 59 to 63, at Munster from 63 to 66, and Tübingen from 66 to 69. And he also held the chair of dogmatics and history at the University of Regensburg. Now, I suppose the most interesting thing about it is that between 1962 and 1965, he was one of the theological advisors to the Cardinal Joseph Frings, the Archbishop of Cologne, who was attending the Second Vatican Council. And it is in this context, I think, that Benedict kind of, I suppose, one of the things that, la that stands out is that he will be the last pope that attended the council. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, you had your Pope, you know, Paul, Paul VI, obviously presided over the council. John Paul II attended the council Bene as, as, a, as the Archbishop of Krakow. Benedict attended the council as an advisor <clears throat> to the council. But obviously Francis, given it wasn't, didn't attend the council. And obviously Francis, none of Francis' successors will have attended the council. So I think that's an important point to, to make um, in, in, in that regard. He was only 50, 51. He was right? very young and they were very much on the they were very much on the edge in terms of what they were trying to advise and get through. Like he was seen as being a dangerous liberal. That's right. I you know, that, yes. this is this yeah, is the thing yeah, about yes. it. He was yeah. he was seen as one of, you know, himself and Kung and and uh, Henry de Lubac, uh, you know, they were all and Hans van Ul Balthasar, they were seen as being dangerous liberals at the time. Mm -hmm. Because of course they were trying, you know, to to open the doors, open the windows, yes. as John the 23rd described for the council. And um, it, one of these most interesting um, aspects, if you like, in terms of it was his contribution to various documents at the council. And the most kind of interesting intervention that was made was the cardinal that he was advising, Cardinal Fring, Fring, Fring uh, made an intervention on the opening session where basically he eviscerated the preparatory documents that have been prepared by the Curia mm. and basically sent them back to scratch and told them to start again. Because there was no sort of discussion. <coughs> there was no discussion and it was very much same old, same old, same old. Mm -hmm. There was nothing, mm -hmm. there was nothing much there. So that, that is seen very much uh, as, as, as his kind of implication or his, his, um, you know, he in, in terms of involvement uh, with the council. He was among those, like, like I said, who strongly criticised the preparatory drafts prepared by the Roman Curia. And he said, the text should respond to the most pressing questions and should do so as far as possible, not judging or condemning, but using maternal language. Um, he supported the liturgical reform at the time, as it was set out by the council. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a different conversation to be had. Is that what happened after the council? We're not getting into that today. And, you know, and he was very much in favour of retrieving the true nature of liturgy. One of his greatest books that he's written, um, one of the two books, well, he's written 60 odd books, but one of the two books that stands, one of the books that stands out is The Spirit of the Liturgy. 
Mm. Um, and and he said it was necessary that the Latin wall be demolished. So then after the council, obviously, he returned to um, he returned to 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 Germany and was lecturing. And then in 1972, he founded the theological journal Communio with Henry de Lubac and Hans Ur van Balthasar. Now, what's interesting around this time, of course, is that most people would put it down at this stage, would say this is when he became an arch conservative. And they blame the impact of the 1968 student, um, I don't know what you'd call them, student uprising, mm-hmm. student, student mm-hmm. events across Europe. Uh, in 1968, and the fact that they came knocking on, you know, his own university in 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 in, in and um, in Tub- in Tub- Tubingen, and <clears throat> uh, you know that it really frightened or startled him. Not necessarily sure that's a fair attribution. The man was very had a very much a different understanding, but we'll cover that in the next part of the podcast when we have an interview with Philip Crimmen looking at that whole point. On the 27th of March, 1977, Paul VI named him the Archbishop of Munich and Friesing. And on the 28th of May, the same year, he was he was received the Episcopal ordination. And he was the first priest, diocesan priest, in 80 years to take on the pastoral governance of that huge archdiocese. He only held it um, for four years. And in the same year, in 1977, at the consistory in June 1977, Paul VI made him a cardinal. And then, which meant that in 1978, he took part in the two conclaves, one that elected John Paul I and the second which elected John Paul II. And then um, he was also involved uh, with the Synod of Bishops in 1980. So he was made Archbishop in 1977. And then four years later, which would be 1981, Mm -hmm. he was called to Rome to become the Prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and the President of the Pontifical Biblical Commission and of the International Theological Mission, which he held those positions basically until the death of John Paul II in 2005. And it was this, I suppose, that very much um, brought him to the fore. I think it would be fair to say that, um, you know, there wasn't a controversy involving the Catholic Church in terms of theology throughout the 1980s and 1990s where Joseph Ratzinger was not involved. Um, he was, you know, very much um, the guardian of the faith under John Paul II. But I suppose that is part of the problem. Mm. I suppose that people look at him through the lens of the prefect as opposed to the man behind the role. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was also, I suppose, very much a witness of the post-conciliar crisis and the kind of the understandings or misunderstandings that happened after the council, when, when the council closed in 1965. And um, he, but it was interesting, he was appointed as prefect to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And despite asking three times, John Paul refused to let mm-hmm. him retire mm-hmm. and return to Bavaria. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that he couldn't, you know, it couldn't be done without him. Um, <clears throat> I suppose there are many things that that could be said about uh, his time at the Congregation of the Faith. Um, I suppose in terms of works that people may or may not realize, uh, one is the uh, fact that he chaired, I think, I think well, he was involved with the, um, the production of the New Catechism, the Catechism oh, of the yeah. Catholic Church. So he was involved with that, that piece of work. Um, that last and that project lasted six years, and the Catechism was published in 1992. 
Um, and it was a serious piece of work that was requested by the bishops from the Synod of Bishops after um, they said a new catechism was needed after the Second Vatican Council. Um, and then, of course, in 2005, Ratzinger was elected Pope after the conclave, after the death of John Paul II. Now, he came to prominence um, at that time because, of course, um, he was the dean of the College of Cardinals. So he was the man that took the funeral mass of the Pope. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. And he gave, he gave that, uh, that great homily at the Mass where he was t- speaking about the dictatorship of relativism and, and um, pretty much, I think, kind of nailed himself to the papal <laughs> throne at that stage. I think his fellow cardinals took one look and said, right, we were, that's where you were going, my friend. Um, you know, so he was elected Pope in 2005. Now, he was already quite old um, at, at the age of 78 when he was elected. He, had, he was one of the, the, the oldest um, pontiffs in, in that regard when he was elected. And he was Pope until the 28th of February 2013. Um, and of course, as we know, as he's, I think one of his great contributions to the church is the fact that he stood down as Pope and was the first to do so in uh, nearly 600 years. During his time as Pope, he visited 24 apostolic visits. The first, of course, one of the first being the World Youth Day. Um, And he fulfilled um, the promise of John Paul II to attend it. Uh, he visited, he went to the World Youth Days, if memory serves, there was one in Germany at Cologne, there was one in Australia, Sorry, uh, and the third one escapes me right now, I'll just think of it in a second. But of course, for me, I think one of the two things that came out of his, well, there's three things I really kind of think that would need to be remembered from his pontificate, from the point of view of faith. One is the three encyclicals that he wrote. Deus Caritus Est, God is Love, uh, was the first one. And it was, you know, people were expecting kind of, you know, this harsh, um, condemnatory kind of a a letter to come out. And the first letter that he produced was a reflection on love. God is love. God is love. Deus Caritas, Mm -hmm. God is love. Um, You know, so it was just, it's a beautiful one. Strongly recommended in terms of people to read, um, you know, and to, to look at. Um, they also then, um, there's also, I suppose one thing to be fair to say is that Benedict is very much, um, how will I put it? He was a teacher and he will probably mm. go down as the teaching Pope. And, um, so he's, he's, he's weekly general audiences, the reflections he gave at those, the encyclicals that he wrote, and of course the books that he wrote. So while he was Pope, he wrote three books in particular, which were on, um, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So there's three books, one on on the, the, the Christmas, one on broken down by the Passion, and one then just kind of the other the other accounts. And beautiful, beautiful books to read. Might be a bit heavy. Let's there's let's not mm, take away yeah, from the fact yeah, that he was yeah. a German theologian at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Um but what I would say to people is if you wanted something actually, you wanted a little project for uh Lent. Lent is starting the twenty second of February. If you wanted a small little project for Lent and you wanted some little reading to reflect on, I would say to you to have a look at um, the weekly general audiences of Benedict XVI or to pick up uh, one of his three encyclicals, um, you know, so and to read and reflect on them over the Lenten period. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's not, it's not, they're not, you know, they're not that hard. The encyclicals in particular are very, very 
um, manageable. You have Deus Caritas Est, which is God is love. There's Spe Salvi, which is in hope we are saved. And in Caritas in Verite, which is charity in truth. So he, about, he wrote about love, hope and charity. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't manage to get the fourth one written, which was on faith. And that was the first encyclical that Pope Francis wrote or finished off uh, uh, Lumen Fide. So there was, that's the three encyclicals. So Deus Caritas Est, God is Love, which was published in 2005. Space Salvi, which was published in 2007, in Hope We Are Saved. And Caritas in Verite, which is Charity in Truth, which was published in 2009. He also, of course, very much wrote, as I said, those three books on Jesus of Nazareth. Again, if you wanted something maybe for Lent, something for you to think about. Um, it's Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week, Jesus of Nazareth, the Infancy Narratives, and then just Jesus of Nazareth is the first mm. one. <clears throat> but it, oh, like it's interesting, Ratzinger as a theologian wrote over 60 books throughout his life. <coughs> and, you know, some of those are still primary text for theological formation right down to the present day. Not to everyone's taste. The man had a particular understanding and a particular view on theology and relationship with the world. And a lot of people did not agree with it. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of food for thought there as well. His most famous book he wrote as a theologian was probably his very first. It was The Introduction to Christianity, which he wrote in 1968 and which is still in print. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it's still in print, as is, as I said, that other book I mentioned, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, and all of them very much still in print down to the present time. You're going to ask me something there, John? No, I, I was just commenting on the fact, just, just thinking to myself, Benedict never moved from his solid belief in the church. Uh, I said when he went into the Vatican Council, he, he was classed as kind of a liberal, but, but still continued on with those views. And it's not, I believe, until after that, people tried to change a few things and maybe go a little bit further than, than what than what the plan was. And he said, no, no, no. And he, he was really only doing his job when he was in... The congregation for the faith isn't that right? Yeah, and you know it. It you know there were it was a it was a two step arrangement. There, you know, John Paul was the big avuncular, yeah. uh, mm. you know, popular man, and then sometimes Benedict had to be kind of Doctor No in the background. Yeah, you know, and I I think you know I think that has to, you know that has to be taken into account as well. Um, it was interesting. One of the analysis pieces I read in preparation for this week's podcast was by John Allen at Crooks. And for me, I actually think John John Allen is one of those writers, go-to writers for me in terms of understanding what's happening mm. at the Vatican. He's been in the role for many, many years. He's written for many organizations. He's a go-to person for some of the big a agencies and, and television studios when something happens in Rome as well. And his piece was called The Death of Benedict XVI Marks the Passing of a Pope of Ironies. And it was an interesting one. He went down through the different things and the historic reforms. I'll get back to that in a second. And it was an interesting one that, you know, in some regards that Benedict could be described as in, you know, a failure in many things. You know, he was a magnificent public intellectual. He was a mixed bag as a CEO in terms of leadership within the church, institutional church. He was withdrawn as a statesman and a, and a church leader whose politics of identity cheered some and alarmed others. I thought it was a very good way of describing him, you know, because people will remember him maybe for what did and didn't happen. But the reality is Benedict was the Pope that started the very slow and uncompleted process of reform yes. that needed to be done yes. in terms of two particular areas with church life. One was the handling of sexual abuse within the institutional church. And, you know, 
basically, John Paul II did not want to deal with it. He didn't want to know about it. Uh, Ratzinger, in 2001, got the authority for the CDF to deal with those issues. Now, obviously, victims of sexual abuse, child, of sexual abuse in the church will say he didn't do enough. And obviously, trying to correct the wrongs that have been done to people, in some ways, you can never do enough. Mm. But he was the man that started the very, very slow movement granted but he started it and moved it as pontiff like one of the very first things he did when he took over was he suspended the rights of marcel the leader of the legionnaire who was a notorious notorious pedophile Mm -hmm. who had been protected by higher up in the church and you know benedict as joseph ratzinger had been blocked in terms of trying to deal with him the other area i think which he he deserves some degree of um acknowledgement on and I'm speaking kind of with a technical hat on in this regard, John, is in the area of financial reform. Yep. It was one of the things that probably drove him out of office in the end, trying to deal with the viper's nest, as was the curia, and all the shenanigans that were going on at the time. Um, but I think it would be fair to say he started the ball rolling in terms of the financial reform, which Pope Francis has continued. Like I don't think there has a year gone by in the pontificate of Francis where there hasn't been at least one or two pieces of legislation issued in the Vatican to deal with financial reform. And that ball was started by Benedict in terms of trying to start things out. But I suppose in his defence, he did tell the cardinals he was not a man to which governance came easily. Mm. So he was, in one sense, I suppose, he was the wrong man for the job in 2005 from the point of view of governing a church that had been leaderless because of the illness of John Paul II for many years. And things had gotten a little skewways, shall we say, around it. But perhaps the spirit works in its own ways in terms of bringing things low, forcing things that had to be done to have to be done when Francis took office, but also putting a pope in place who had the courage to be able to turn around and say, perhaps I need to go. And from a historical Mm -hmm. point of view, from a non, from an ad extra outside the church point of view, this will probably be what Benedict will go down in history for, was he was the first pope in 600 years to declare on the 11th of February 2013, during the ordinary public consistory, that he was resigning from the Petrine ministry with these words, having repeatedly examined my conscience before God, I have come to the certainty that my strengths due to an advanced age, are no longer suited to an adequate exercise of the Petrine ministry. Um, For this reason, and full aware of the seriousness of this act, with full freedom I declare that I renounce the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter. And, you know, it, it, you know, his pontificate came to an end on the 28th of February 2013 when the Sede Vacante was declared. And he lived at the Mater Ecclesia Monastery in the Vatican um, uh, for the 10 years after he dying, or after he resigning, sorry. And it is that act, I think, more than anything else, which will probably go down in the history books for him as paving the change in our understanding of the, the papal ministry. Now, it does pose a challenge, and it's one, I think, that the Church hasn't really processed what it means to have a Pope Emeritus. Uh, even the title Pope Emeritus mm. uh, has caused issues. Yeah. Um, pe- some people are saying he should be Bishop Emeritus because he's the Bishop of Rome. Uh, the whole issue around should he be dressed in the white? How should he be called? Should he live in Rome? All this kind of thing. Um, you know, And we'll have to wait and see what implication it has for the current successor of St. Peter, Pope Francis. Francis himself has indicated that if he ever felt he couldn't do the job, he would probably go down the same route. So, of course, that is obviously the speculation that's happening at the present time. Mm. 
So that's John. That's a brief, brief biography of a man who, you know, at, was 96, 95 years of age when he died. Um, I was looking back, actually, at some of the videos of his 2010 visit to the UK, um, you know, and in particular to when he, he met with Queen Elizabeth. And I mm -hmm. found it interesting that the two of them died in the same year. You know, because if you think about it, at yeah. the time when they when he was pope and she was queen, they were probably the last two heads of state that knew the experience of the fear of the Nazi jackboot yeah. and had okay. lived through the Second World War. You know, we're getting to that stage where that generation is passing on and with it kind of goes probably a very key criterion for us to be aware of the dangers of things that can arise say, from a fascist point of view. Uh, and we just have to look at what's happening in the United States of America at the moment to see the warning that it could be, that could be there for each of us. But you mentioned, you know, the, his, his visit to UK. I mean, from what I believe, at, at the outset or just before his visit, I mean, the idea was, oh, no, not this guy. He's a tough mm -hmm. guy and mm -hmm. right wide and so on and so forth. But I believe it was very successful. It was extremely successful. Mm -hmm. Yes, at the time, um, the media, the British media yeah. went berserk, the mm -hmm. Red Tops in particular. And there was a like a vicious, everyone, in, in hindsight, people would agree that it was a vicious smear campaign against him. But his visit as kind of a humble, gentle man kind of turned the tide. And many, many Catholics in the UK would have said his visit was quite, quite eventful in the sense of the impact that it had. Um, um, but also there was there was two things that stood out, I suppose, looking back at it. One was he was never a person where he wanted the attention focused on himself. Mm -hmm. That was something that came out at the at the, the World Youth Days, um, but also in the public masses that he had when he was in the UK and the focus on the Blessed Sacrament and silence. You know, hundreds and thousands of people yeah. and just this vast crowd of silence uh, in adoration and worship. You know, a lot to be said for it. Um, then the other thing was... You know, uh, there was a quote, the, the British Prime Minister at the time was David Cameron, mm -hmm. and he met the Pope in Birmingham in 2010 as he was leaving. Because, of course, one of the reasons Benedict came to the UK at the time was for the canonization, canonization. canonization of John Henry Newman. John Henry Newman, yeah. So... Um, he said he so Cameron met him at the airport in terms of his, you know, he was he was leaving and he said, Holy Father, um, you made us sit up and think, mm. you know, and obviously for someone like Benedict, who was a, an intellectual, who was a professor, you know, that obviously was a it was a great was a great speech to think about. And it's that idea, John, of the teaching pontiff that I think and the teaching, you know, the teaching, the teacher. I think that people should think about and reflect about when we talk about Benedict XVI. For those that might not be of theological inclinations, mm -hmm. shall we see, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and for those that might say, well, he's all about the church, about the church. There's four or five speeches that were given that I think would well warrant people's attention. And I, I came across an inter interesting article which noted they were all in Septembers. So in September 2006, there was the Regensburg Address. Yep. Now, that caused a whole lot of controversy at the time in the Muslim world because of a particular quote which was taken out of context and which Pope Benedictine had to apologise for afterwards. And it was an interesting speech because what it was, was he argued that biblical faith is reasonable and therefore to act against reason is to act contrary to faith in the God of Abraham and incarnate in Christ Jesus. 
And he said, hence violence in the name of faith is contrary to reason. You know, two years later, in September 2008, he was in Paris and he addressed the world of culture at the College de Verdun, uh, which was once home to the Cistercians. And he argued that the world of reason needs the intellectual motivation provided by faith. You know, um, he made the point the monks were motivated by their search for God, but their work of research on the word of God gave rise to an entire culture of literature, science and scholarships. Two years after that, he was in the UK in September 2010, and he gave a historic address at Westminster Hall. And at the, same, the following year, in 2011, he gave a similar address at the Bundestag in Berlin. And the two speeches argued that law and politics had to follow the dictates of reason, not revelation, but that human nature gives rise to a moral order that must be respected. And then finally, I suppose, uh, there is the speech that was given in September 2012 in Beirut, where Benedict explored the freedom and truth in the context of religious pluralism. And which, of course, would be re- very relevant for Lebanon and the Middle East. So I just it's an interesting there, there. There's a number of speeches there. I think, well, we put up we'll put up links to stuff like this so people can find in the find in the in the in the notes to the podcast. But like I said, if I was recommending um, Linton reading to people, I would say take the general audiences of his pontificate. They're short. They're short pieces. Mm-hmm, yeah, they're okay. very um, digestible. Um, then I would say he's three encyclicals. And then if you really wanted a gold star, go for the speeches. I think I'll stay with the with, with the audiences. Yeah, I, you know, I think most people would. There. But I, I, my own view is I think, you know, no more than John Paul II. I, personally, I think the canonization of John Paul II was slightly rushed. Not denying that he was a saint, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it was slightly rushed. Um, I don't think we're going to see the same rush to canonize Benedict XVI. Mm-hmm. But my feeling is that in a hundred years, we will still be reading the books of Joseph Ratzinger. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I just think, I think that's, that's the feeling I have in relation to it. And that's, you know, there will probably come a time where potentially his name will be added to the doctors of the church. They are prophetic words. So at this particular stage, Mm-hmm. So the next piece of music we have uh, is Ubi Caritas. Now, I picked this because it was kind of inspired by um, his encyclicals, and in particular the first one, Deus Caritas Es, Where God is Love. It's a simple one. It's Ubi Caritas, straight from Thésée. And after that, what we're going to do is we're going to have an interview with Philip Crimmon, who's a lecturer in Waterford Institute of Technology. And this was an interview we did with Philip in preparation, <laughs> in preparation for, uh, for, for, for Pope Benedict's uh, death. But it was to discuss the impact of Ratzinger as a theologian on the church more than anything else. So we come to that in the next part of the podcast.
Delighted to welcome to the programme this morning uh, Philip Crimmon. Philip is a lecturer in Theology and Religious Studies in Waterford Institute of Technology. Good morning, uh, Philip. Welcome to the programme. Good morning, Shane, and good morning to your listeners. Delighted to have you on. Now, obviously, uh, you know, the conversation this morning, of course, is about the man, the contribution of Joseph Ratzinger. And we're delighted to have you on the programme to kind of talk to us about what is the contribution of Joseph Ratzinger or Benedict XVI from the point of view of, I suppose, Christian theology, not even necessarily Catholic theology? Because, of course, you know, people would know him very much as the Pope, as the Prefect of the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith. But I suppose the fundamental thing about, ben, about Joseph Ratzinger was he was a theologian at heart. Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Shane. Um, this, this man, Joseph Ratzinger, later to become known as Benedict XVI, uh, is at heart an academic and intellectual a theologian um, of, of the Christian tradition. Um, he's, he, he was, you know, just to put it in context, I suppose, he was born in, in, in 1927, um, he was one of the very young uh, uh, progressive uh, thinkers at the time of Vatican II. And Vatican II, maybe some of your listeners will know, uh, was this big event in the 1960s, early 60s. Uh, so Ratzinger at that time was, was this young 35-year-old academic, um, was, was a, a, a main advisor to the German church during the council, um, and he was seen at that time as a kind of a dangerous radical in, in effect. Um, uh, and, and really his, his significance there, or, or I suppose he became really kind of well noticed there because of his, his ideas ar around, um, I suppose, how we can understand God in the world. Uh, no, there's a technical term for that in theology. We call it God's self-revelation, right? And, you know, it's very interesting. I find it in my own teaching, you know, when you talk to people about revelation, first of all, they kind of curl up and look at you as if to say, what the hell are you on about? Uh, and then you, 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 you know, begin a conversation. And when you ask most Christians about revelation and where God is revealed, most people will say scripture. Well, this is exactly the point that Ratzinger kind of, I suppose, honed in on uh, during the council. And he really did turn, I suppose, the, the, the standard or the traditional understanding of God's revelation in history on its head to, to a point. Uh, and he brought in or he proposed a much more kind of intimate or personal kind of um, understanding of who God is in one's life rather than this kind of intellectual um, um, uh, 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 thing that that somehow the church gave to everybody else in a sense. Um, so that was his first kind of, uh, uh, I suppose, contribution as such to the Catholic or the Christian kind of uh, theology of the 20th century. Um, now, he, he really does have another, I suppose, serious uh, focal point to his theology, and it is uh, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Again, in theology, we have a big word for that. We call it Christology, right? Now, but I wouldn't, you know, don't, let's not get too scared about uh, big terms, but Christology or Christ or Jesus of Nazareth becomes the central figure. And in that sense, you might say he's very different to John Paul II, for example. Uh, people will remember John Paul um, um, as a great advocate of Mary, for example. Well, um, you know, uh, 
Ratzinger, uh, throughout his entire life, um, would really, I'm not saying he, he had no devotion to Mary, but really the centerpiece of his whole life is this Jesus of Nazareth character. He goes on to kind of develop an amazing uh, anthropology, the study of the human being and who the, study, the, the human being is in terms of his understanding of who Christ is, okay? He, he actually, um, and this is not a negative thing at all. Um, it's very much, it's a very positive thing. Uh, he, he, he talks about um, Christology as being um, the humanness of humanity, in effect. Um, you know, this idea of getting to know Christ and who he is. Another key aspect, I think, of his own theology and his own, cont- his own contribution to, to the church and to the world at large, particularly in the West, was, of course, he was not afraid to criticize dangerous aspects of Christianity. Uh, and in fact, also, as he saw it, the, some dangerous aspects of modernity and, I suppose, our modern way of viewing reality and so on and so forth. Now, I'd like to unpack that a little bit, if I may. Um, what, what kind of dangerous aspects of Christianity would he, would he have criticized? Well, fundamental to, to his criticism here is, for Ratzinger, faith and reason are necessary kind of, they're two necessary pillars, as it were, uh, for any Christian, and in particular for Christian theology as a whole. There's a a natural relatedness, right? Now, um, faith without reason, uh, according to Ratzinger, will lead you to a kind of a sickness, uh, a sickness. And he used the word in German, uh, meaning pathology, a sickness. So faith without reason becomes sick, as it were. And of course, on, on the on kind of modernity side, then reason without a faith can lead to ideological positions. And he himself in his own life uh, would have experienced that at first hand, you know, growing up in Germany uh, through the Nazi kind of ideology and later on in Europe with communism and so on and so forth. Um, so, so religion for Ratzinger must constantly allow itself to be challenged by reason, right? Now, of course... There's nothing new in this in the Christian tradition, because if we go back into the kind of the the depths of the Christian community back into the early centuries, faith and reason was was the cornerstone of this new fledging um, religious movement. Um, So Christianity and the Christian telling of the story, according to Ratzinger, then in this sense, has a lot to teach us today, according to him. Um, Now, what I find as well in my own experience dealing with and encountering Christians of all sorts of shapes and sizes is that this, this, pro- this proposal of faith and reason worries some people, particularly very fundamentalist uh, people. Um, they don't like talking about faith being, uh, uh, you know, having to be critiqued by, by, by reason as, as such. Um, and that leads me to another uh, 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 point, I think, and it is the way Ratzinger encountered the non-believer, right? Or let's say the secular world, to put a more modern term in it. And and in this in this kind of encounter for Ratzinger, both the believer and the non-believer, both the religious person and the secular person, they have much more in common than they do than they might even think themselves, right? And what did he mean by that? Well, when it comes to the question of God, 
arguably, and we, we, we all know this, I think, intuitively, neither the believer nor the, nor the non-believer can actually argue de- definitively in respect of their own positions, right? So, so both the believer and the non-believer are engaging in what he might, what he called the drama of life and the questions that, that life itself, the difficult questions that life itself throws up. For example, the, the, the problem of suffering, innocent suffering, evil, and so on and so forth. And that really both the believer and the non-believer uh, are engaged in this drama, seeking answers to these um, um, these difficult questions. Um, so again, that allowed him, of course, Ratzinger himself, to engage with the wider secular um, world, to put it to, to, to just put it that way. Um, and we have many examples in his encountering with, um, you know, secular philosophers. I'm thinking of you know, the German Joseph, uh, or sorry, Jürgen Habermas, and so on and so forth. Uh, a lot more common ground there than you might imagine. Um, the purpose for, of, of theology for Ratzinger, of course, is, is not to destroy or belittle reason at, at all, but rather to make belief possible as understanding. Yeah. Now, that's a problem for some believers, because what it means is when one encounters the world, one has to or when the believer encounters the world, one has to know a little bit about one's own faith, right? Um, and 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 that's that's a proposition that uh, uh, many, um, I find many fundamentalist Christians have a real problem with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the way I would summarize it, Shane. Um, it's there's you know there 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 was quite a few bits the few bits there, but I suppose two things that struck me about just I suppose in terms of what you said, uh, Philip. One was. I suppose that uh, that focus on Christology, the focus on Christ, and for me, I think that was epitomized by the last, effectively, the last three books he wrote, which of course was the books Jesus of Nazareth, which he wrote as Benedict XVI. Uh, some of which there's some very beautiful writings in it, and I suppose the, the danger is he's seen as her professor, he's seen as the German professor, and that his stuff can be seen as being unapproachable by the ordinary Joe Sokin street. But even I myself, I have found those books, they're very readable. They're very kind of, you know, things to pick up. And I suppose that is one of the, I suppose that's one of the fears that's out there, you know, when we look back in, in, at, at this man's contribution, that there is a strong risk or probability that he'd be more talked about than actually having his works properly read for what he actually said himself. It's a bit almost like this ongoing debate you have about the Vatican Council, where people talk about the spirit of the council instead of what did the council actually say? That's right. I think, yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up, because uh, that, that, uh, those books, uh, those three volumes on Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, the background to that is fascinating. Um, you're, you're absolutely correct. He, he was the first pope in history who, who published a, 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 a significant piece of work, not as Pope Benedict, but as the theologian Ratzinger. And it's interesting why he did it. And the reason he did that was in the late 1980s, Ratzinger, the theologian, read a book by a a Jewish scholar uh, on Jesus of Nazareth. And in that book, the Jewish scholar um, put himself into the audience um, in Matthew's Gospel on the Sermon on the Mount and said to himself, would I follow this Jesus character as a devout Jew, having listened to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? And uh, the 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 uh, Jewish scholar said no. 
he would not follow Jesus as the Messiah. Ratzinger read that book and he, he said it was the most brilliant book that he'd ever read on Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, Ratzinger, I will have to respond to it. And his response actually came, as you rightly point out, in in the three volumes, uh, three volumes of Jesus of Nazareth, volume one, two, and three. And that Jewish scholar, um, uh, you know, developed a very close relationship with Ratzinger through the years. They had much, much correspondence. And in actual fact, he was the first non-Christian, if I can put it like that, to visit Benedict in Rome um, uh, during his, the, those early years of, of his papacy. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Jesus of Nazareth is, is, the key, is the key really to understanding Ratzinger's own theology and, I suppose, his own faith, as it were, right? And the other point you make there is there is a real danger that Ratzinger and Benedict um, will actually, I suppose, in effect, be lost, you know, um, you know, uh, even if you think of the, the the latest Netflix movie there on the two popes, um, you know, the unfair caricature is really kind of hoisted upon Benedict, you know, uh, in favour, of course, of Bergoglio, now, now uh, Pope, Pope Francis. Um, mm-hmm. And again, a, a very, very uneven, I would say, uh, representation of, of, of the man and his depth, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Philip. Listen, thank you so much. We could we could continue with it, but I suppose for me, uh, just kind of drawing this piece to a close, I suppose is that famous quote that Benedict have, um, you know, which I think for me sums up, if you like, the relationship that Joseph Ratzinger was trying to teach uh, Christians around the world, and and as you said, linking it with that Christology thing, it's what when we meet the living God in Christ, do we know what life is? We are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. And that's taken from his, the homily in St. Peter's Square in 2005 on, 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 during his inauguration as Pope. And I think for me, it sums up the man that we knew as Benedict XVI as Joseph Ratzinger. Philip, listen, thanks a million for having, joining us on the program this morning. We're delighted to have you and hopefully we'll have you on again. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. And thank you very much, Shane. Bye-bye. Perfect. Thank you. So thanks again to Philip Clement for joining us and sharing that information and reflection with us on Pope Francis. Now we can listen to a piece of music entitled Mater Ecclesia, which also uh, includes uh, Pope Benedict actually speaking and praying through this piece of music.
vogliamo ringraziarti, Vergine Madre di Dio e Madre nostra amatissima, per la tua intercessione in favore della Chiesa. Tu che, abbracciando senza riserve la volontà divina, ti sei consacrata con ogni tua energia alla persona e all'opera del Figlio tuo, insegnaci a serbare nel cuore e a meditare in silenzio, come hai fatto tu, i misteri della vita di Cristo. Tu che avanzasti sino al Calvario, sempre profondamente unita al Figlio tuo, che sulla croce ti donò come madre il discepolo Giovanni, fa che ti sentiamo sempre anche noi, vicina, in ogni istante dell'esistenza, soprattutto nei momenti di oscurità e di prova. Uh, so that piece of music there that just gave us that little mental break, if you like, after that re- that discussion with Philip Crimmon from Waterford Institute of Technology about uh, Joseph Ratzinger, the theologian, was Mater Ecclesia. So the next part of the podcast, what we're going to talk about is we're just going to reflect on the funeral of Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. But before we get into that, John, we have a recording from, we're, we're borrowing this from EWTN. It's an interview uh, with Cardinal George Pell. Um, and I just thought, we came across it as part of the preparation for this for the podcast. And I just thought it was an interesting one. Um, a man who was a friend of Joseph Ratzinger, who was very much involved in his inner circle when he was in Rome. And I just thought it was an interesting number of reflections, including on the time that Benedict was in Australia for the World Youth Day as well. What was your initial reaction when you heard that Pope Benedict XVI had passed away? I was very sad. As a matter of fact, I was surprised uh, how sad I was. Uh, I knew he was sick. I I knew he was dying. Uh, I was rather pleased because I thought I'd heard that he'd rallied and was disconcerting the experts and going to live a little bit longer. I'd known him well enough. I admired what he was about. I thought he was very good for the church. And so it was... uh, Sad uh, to see another st- wonderful stage in church history ending. When people look back at his papacy, one of the highlights they point to was World Youth Day in Australia when you were cardinal there in Sydney. What are your memories of that? Well, we would, uh, we, we Australians, we Catholic Australians would certainly say that. Uh, and uh, we believe he's being buried in the Chasuble uh, that he used in World Youth Day in Australia, but whether that's Australian propaganda or not, we're, we're not uh, completely uh, sure. It really impressed uh, the great majority of Australians who are not particularly religious, uh, but open. And uh, my greatest memory, he, 
He insisted that the great liturgical celebrations, the masses, that we should work hard that they are prayers and acts of adoration. And so he insisted on reverence and quiet. And we had something like 400,000 at the final mass, the biggest gathering in Australian history. And after communion, um, I could hear the birds singing. A wonderful moment of uh, recollection and, uh, and adoration and prayer. In your experience, what was he like one-on-one -on -one as, a, as a person? Oh, the complete opposite of uh, the caricatures of his enemies, uh, especially before he became uh, Pope. And people actually saw what he was like. You know, they called him the Rottweiler and the Panzer Cardinal and all that, which was absurd. Uh, because nothing Prussian about him. He was a Bavarian. He was a quiet, gentle, uh, pious man, absolute gentleman. Do you think that he took much notice of the characterizations or was he bothered by them? I think he was uh, slightly amused. I don't think, I don't think he was particularly bothered because I, he was a highly intelligent man and he realized they were just so far from the truth that uh, they were um, irrelevant. Now, it's not to say that he was conservative. Uh, but you see, we Catholics, it's a little bit difficult not to be conservative because we follow a man who died 2,000 years ago. And we say that he explained to us uh, the secrets of life, this life or the next life. As they say, a legacy is in the eye of the beholder. And over the coming days and weeks and years, there'll be much debate and analysis about his life and legacy. But what do you think his legacy should be? Well, you see, he died principally, uh, well, he died, you know, from old age, but he was Pope. Now, what's the role of the Pope? It's not to be uh, the great uh, Catholic preacher, it's not to be the big television star. Most Popes in history had nothing like the theatrical and public leadership uh, capacities of John Paul II. Uh, the Pope has a scriptural role. He's the man of rock. He's the successor of Peter. He's the foundation of the church. Uh, he's the guarantor that the people in the pews are receiving the same teachings uh, that the Christ and the apostles gave and that the unity of the church, 1.4, 3 or 4 billion Catholics, is built around the figure of Christ and the apostolic tradition. Now, in these terms, Benedict was a magnificent success. He realized that the secrets of our vitality are um, in the redemptive activity and teaching of uh, Jesus Christ. That was his job. Uh, now, he wasn't the greatest administrator, greatest executive, uh, not a natural politician, um, not a backslapper as in the Irish-American uh, tradition, but he did what he was um, supposed to, and that is to strengthen the faith of his brothers. 
It's uh, not to entertain uh, uh, the non-believers or those who have rejected uh, what we're about. They're an important constituency. We must try to reach them. Uh, but what is important is to reassure the people in the pews. Finally, if you were to summarise Pope Benedict as a person and his papacy in one word, what would it be? Well, let me give two words. A Christian disciple. Cardinal George Pell, thank you very much. So uh, that was an interview with Cardinal Penn, which was conducted by EWTN, reflecting on the death of Benedict XVI. So, John, um, I suppose yourself and myself, one of the other things that we did during the week was we were obviously watching the funeral on Thursday morning. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting one, of course. So it was... It was being described as being historic, I suppose, in many respects. It was the, there, was, there was a lot of media coverage saying it was the first time that a pontiff presided at the funeral of his predecessor, which wasn't quite 100% true. Um, the last time a reigning pope had presided over the funeral of a predecessor was in 1802, when Pius VIII led the service for Pius VII, because Pius VII died in exile in 1799. Where did you dig that up from? RT I mean, actually had it. Well, <laughs> yeah. I was very impressed okay. when I came okay. across it. Okay. I wouldn't normally put that level of research down to uh, RTE, okay. to be fair. Um, yeah, but that was it. But it was an interesting, I suppose, because um, there was a number of interesting things about the funeral, because obviously Pope Francis was there. So it was the funeral for a former pope. So they had to adapt it in many ways and adapt the funeral liturgy. Now, the first thing, I suppose, was the lying in state. It wasn't a full lying in state because a lying in state of a pope who has died in office is the death of a head of state. Mm. So, you know, it'd be like the queen. She yeah. was the head of state. Mm, mm, mm. So when a head of state dies, there's a whole protocol involved in that when other heads of state come to pay their respects. But because Pope Francis wasn't a head of state, there wasn't the full official lying in state. You didn't have, you know, the heads of state, the heads of government coming to pay their respects. The only official delegations that were invited were the Italian delegation and the German delegation. Mm. So the Italians were led by the president and their new prime minister and the Germans were led by their president as well. Um, I have to say on the morning of the, of the funeral, the Italians in particular looked absolutely frozen yes. outside St. Peter's in the square. A very foggy morning. It was a very there. foggy morning and overcast. It was very early. The mass was at 9.30. Yeah. Mm. I did kind of wonder what the reason was behind that. But it was interesting. Um, when Pope Benedict's body was lying in, Saint, in state in St. Peter's, something which someone pointed out to me was there was no pallium. Mm -hmm. And there was no ferula. There was no papal staff mm. on the on the bier on, with him beside yeah. him. But if you remember back to John Paul II, they were both there because of course they were symbols of the office. They were, you know, the the papal staff. Obviously, Pope Francis needs it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's be fair. Yeah. And obviously, the pallium is the symbol of the office. And Benedict had surrendered his pallium when he resigned as pontiff. Now, obviously, his pallium would have been put back on. That the pallium is the bands of sheep's wool around the shoulders, the white band. And Benedict wore a very particular style of one when he was um, made, when he was elected Pope and they had that first Mass. Do all archbishops also wear one as well? Yes, there? all the major archbishops, all mm -hmm. the archbishops mm -hmm. get one as well. And um, so, um, so, so, for example, going back to, uh, say, Cardinal Hume, or Basil Hume, Mm. Archbishop of Westminster. So when he died and he was buried, his request was he was buried in his Benedictine habit because, of course, he was a Benedictine monk before yeah. he died. Mm. But in his coffin, underneath his head, they would have rolled up his pallium 
and put it in because he would have been buried with it. Very good, Shane. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> all, these, all these nuggets. I know. It was, it was probably the same for Benedict. Although they may have put it on him. We just yeah, we don't okay. know. We don't know. Yeah. So there was three coffins. We only saw one, which was an inner cypress coffin. Mm-hmm. And that was the one in which the body was placed. And then the tradition of placing a veil over the face, probably done by Benedict's uh, pr- private secretary, Archbishop uh, Gaswin, George. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful George as he used to be called yeah that's what the Italians used that's to call right. him yeah 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 okay. and um, so as well as that then there would also have been a bunch of coins and medals that would have been struck during his pontificate and there would have been a, a scroll probably encased in lead outlining his history as a pontiff and they published the, the details of that actually on the Vatican website now the reason that those were enclosed that was something which started around the Middle Ages because what happened was when they built the new St. Peter's and they had to move the papal graves, they didn't know who was buried where. Things got a little bit chaotic. Okay. So this is where this idea has come out of put in the coins so, and yeah. put, <laughs> so that you can identify the man in the coffin. Well done, Shai. Well so um, then obviously um, so as I said there's the three layers of coffin now people said why is there three layers of coffin well it actually is a very practical thing in terms of preserving the body okay you know so the outer the inner one was Cyprus so that was the one we saw on the ground mm-hmm. in the square mm-hmm. in St. Peter's then there would have been a zinc case inside that one again and then the final outside case would have been elm probably now as I said to my one of the things I said to my brother is um, it took 12 of them to lift the coffin that's right I was like how heavy is the zinc one going to be <laughs> yes, you know yeah. to put him into to put eventually put him mm. into his, his grave um, that's an interesting thing actually he's been buried in what was the grave of John Paul II that, yeah. which prior to that was the grave of John the 23rd okay uh, so it, this is this is a grave in the grottos under the Vatican crypt which has been you know reused and recycled so again adding to Benedict's criteria as one of the green popes <laughs> <laughs> The way you put that. I know. Anyway, go ahead, eh? Yeah. So, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Michael Michael Kelly from the Irish Catholic made the point. Uh, he was doing the commentary for RTE. And he made the point that where Benedict is buried, he's literally just a wall away from the Irish chapel that's in the Vatican Grottos. Uh, so that's just a nice little a nice little touch. Right, yeah. People will say, well, where did John Paul II and John the Twenty Third go? When both of them were canonized, not sainted, as someone said in one of the commentaries, yeah, when they yeah, were canonized, yeah. their bodies were moved up to the floor of the main basilica. So John Paul II is in the, is at the altar of Saint Sebastian. Uh, so that's why you can you can you can go to to pray it and see his remains. So it's all lies as to what happens. Well, I tell you now, if 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 Benedict the Sixteenth is canonized and comes out of that grave again, it'll be a case of right, okay, okay. right, put him in. Whoever goes in is coming back out. Um, the mass, of course, it was an interesting one. Now there was a technicality with the mass, John. Right, the mass was presided over by Pope Francis, but the it the was dean. the said by the dean of the College of Cardinals, yeah. which is Cardinal Battista Ray. Now, Battista Ray, we would get to see we'll we'll see him again whenever we have Francis's funeral because he's the dean of the College of Cardinals so he will say the funeral mass for Pope Francis okay Um, you know so unless of course Francis retires and his successor will say it you know Um, there was different different things they did for the funeral mass that would have been traditional to the papal mass and things that they took out the crowd in the square was estimated about 60,000 not bad 
um, for cold morning in Rome. Mm-hmm. And also they said between 160 and 200,000 people processed through St. Peter's to pa- give their respects to, yes. the, to, the, to the remains as well. For me, interesting, just watching it actual again was the, um, the procession in of the cardinals and the patriarchs of the Eastern Church. Now, mm. I know I'm a liturgical nerd. I pick up on these things. Yeah. But what for me, it just reminded us that the Catholic Church isn't just all about Rome. Yes. And the Latin and the West. Not as that, yeah. You know, it is, there are 24 churches that make up the Catholic Church. There is the Latin Church, which you and I are members mm-hmm. of, John, and most people in Ireland will belong to, or most Catholics in Ireland will belong to, I should say. But you have 23 other churches that are in communion with the See of Rome. Um, and they're, you know, they're the, our, Eastern, our Eastern brethren, as we call them. The, um, in, uh, you know, so it was, it was just, it was an, there was changes to the prayers of the faithful. There was obviously a change in the readings that were used. Interesting, of course, there was an Irish connection with the reading. So I believe. Yes, mm-hmm. the second reading was read by a woman from Donegal, Mary Maguire. She was from the Diocese of Raffaele. Uh, and and is involved with the hugely involved it seems with the Saint Vincent de Paul up in that neck of the woods. So she, uh, you know so that should so there wasn't there's always an Irish connection. John. There's <laughs> always an Irish connection. Hey, well, <laughs> yeah, Ireland was represented by our, our ambassador to the Holy See, but because she was newly appointed, she was kind of at the back of okay. all the diplomats because they do it on a first come first serve basis. Uh, in attendance, you had the King and Queen of Belgium. You had the Dowager Queen of Spain. You had uh, presidents and prime ministers from the Czech Republic, from the Poland, from Hungary. Um, obviously, as I said, the official delegations from Germany and Italy. Um, so it was, you know, it was an interesting one. And then, of course, at the end, the final commendation, the prayers were done by Pope Francis, but the insensation and the blessing of the holy water was done by Cardinal Ray. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, we have that scene where they were carrying the coffin back into St. Peter's and Pope Francis met it for the final time. But I believe... Um Pope, ben- Pope Emeritus Benedict really dictated as to how the f- what format the funeral should take. Solemn and sober was yes. the dictation he gave. So people might be saying, well, how come it wasn't this, that, and the other? This is the way he wanted it. Exactly, you know, right? you know and, and as well as that, I suppose, they were also kind of managing around the kind of the complexities of it. Like, it's the first time you were doing a mass for, a funeral mass for a retired Pope to all intents and purposes. Um, you know, so it was just they had they had to kind of deal with it as they go along. Um, it'll be interesting to see. You know, he wanted it solemn but sober, and you know, so it's 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 it's, and I think that that would be fair to to say that that is what happened. Um, and obviously, the burial took place privately afterwards. Now, for anyone that was watching the television, the cameras kept going back to four individuals. Uh, there was three women and there was the Archbishop George Gaswin. Mm. Now, Ga- mm. George Gaswin was the Pope's private secretary uh, when he was the co- uh, the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And then he was appointed his pri- principal private secretary when he was elected Pope. And then he was looking after him when he retired as well. And for a while, he was also head of the papal household for Pope Francis. Um, so he pa- he was part of Pope Benedict's household, yes. if you like, his mm-hmm. family that lived in the monastery. The three women that were there, they were also, they were, they're three consecrated women. They're not nuns, they're mm-hmm. consecrated. And they were those that lived with him in the monastery and looked after yeah. the monastery, looked after mm-hmm. him. Uh, so they formed his household. And they had kind of taken over that role after the death of his own sister, Maria, because Maria had been his housekeeper for many years when he was living in Rome as the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. So, do you know, it, it, it was something that maybe people had anticipated was going to happen. Mm-hmm. All of the, the weeks, you know, the... the the presentation, we'll say, for want of a better word, of how the Vatican 
conducted mm. um, the ceremony and the funeral and the lion in state and so on and so forth. I, I suppose to sum, to sum it all up, uh, for me anyway, it would be the man was a simple man. I wanted to keep it as simple as possible. At the same time, keep the reverence about it uh, and the stature, for one of a better word, mm-hmm. that he was a former pope. And to me anyway, that you know that came out. And I, and just one last point, it's a bit like when he went over to Britain. Mm. Uh, before that, the boys were going to have a go at him and the red tops and so on and so forth. To a certain extent now, when people get a chance maybe to reflect if they have the time and if they're, if they're willing to, to listen back to some of these catechesis that he would have given maybe, as you said, in his weekly audiences, we might get a, a different flavour and a different intuition as to what this man was saying to us and he was teaching us. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's like anything. It's like, you know, after what happened with John Paul II, you need time to think in, um, you know, and to reflect on, 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 on his contribution and what's 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 done. Um, but it's, it's an interesting one as well, is just that... Um, you know, it's 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 time to reflect as on the teaching pope. I think is what is what we would say. And so, at this stage, maybe just to finish off this part of, um, and, and by the way, thank you very much, Neil, for that presentation, mm-hmm. uh, where, where you get all those little nuggets of information. I don't know, but uh, the beauty of a podcast is that we can listen to it over and over again. So, thanks a lot, Neil, for that, Sean. You're going to finish off anyway to find a piece of music. Yes. Now, one of the things we mentioned in, in when we were discussing about Pope about Joseph Ratzinger, of course, was his love for Mozart, and he grew up about thirty kilometers living from Salzburg, and he played. He was a he was a he was he was a he was a Mozart aficionado. He played the piano himself, and it was one of the things that had to be moved from his apartment to the papal apartments when he was made pope. There was two things that had to be moved. Well, there was three. One was his library, which was absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. Second of all was the piano, because he had to um, bring the piano with him. Mm-hmm. And the third thing was his cat. Is that right? Yeah, the cat had to come with him as well. Where do you get these things from? I just, anyway. you know. Yeah, anyway. uh, well, uh, but it was interesting, actually. Um, um, the When he did, when he was elected Pope and he was packing up the apartment, I remember, do you remember, John, there was a whole load of kudos given to Pope Francis for going back to pay his bill? Yeah. Yeah. Benedict beat him to it. Mm. Joseph Ratzinger beat him to it because Joseph went through the entire apartment building that he lived in, knocking on the doors, saying goodbye to the cleaners and the staff that worked in the apartment off the apartments that he knew. No. Yeah. But anyway, and it's it's typical him. Yes, he it's very want, much. He didn't it's want given. To be, yeah, exactly. Um, but it's it, but it's 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 an interesting um, to see how it goes. But as you said, John, to close out this reflection on this, you know, obituary on the humble worker in the vineyard of the Lord, as he described himself when he was elected pope, we're going to close out with a piece of, Mo- of of by Mozart. It's from Mozart's Requiem. It's the Dies Irae. Now, this is a piece which. Uh, was part of the Latin Mass up to 1969 and the reform of the council. It's actually a poem, It's it's uh, which is probably the reason that it was taken out, uh, probably from the 13th century. Um, but it's it's an interesting piece, very much associated uh, with kind of um, the reminder of the last things and judgment. So mm-hmm. hence the reason it would be quite appropriate in this regard. Uh, but also at the end, uh, the last segment of it is the P.A. Jesu. Um, oh yes, you know. Yeah, now not as we know it, the Andrew Lloyd Webber with it, but this is where he took. This is where he stole the lines from. Okay. Um, so it's the P.A. Jesu, and I just I thought it was an appropriate piece to close out this reflection on the life and the times of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. <laughs> 